There is an epidemic of chronic illness. When you think about this, Carol, one out of two children now has a chronic disorder. That in itself is shocking information. That's right from the CDC. We now have, everyone knows about the obesity epidemic. It's about one in five children. Everyone knows about asthma. It's about one in eight American children, one in six African-American children. But what's equally horrific, and every pediatrician should be screaming about this, is the rate of neurocognitive disorders, and that those are disorders affecting kids' brain function, such as autism spectrum disorder, which is now hovering around one in 43 boys, one in about 68 children overall. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais. Hello and welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gervais. I'm a certified holistic nutritionist and the host of the show. At Food Integrity Now, we like to investigate and explore what's happening in our food supply so that you can make wise decisions for your health and for your family's health. And I'd like to give a big shout out to Ben Sound Music for our intro and outro music. Hi, it's Carol Gervais, and I am a certified holistic nutritionist, a life coach, and the host of Food Integrity Now. What you eat and how you eat can greatly affect the way you look and feel and whether or not you get sick. If your immune system is compromised, you might have brain fog, allergies, low energy, depression, or worse, have a disease. A poor diet can lead to diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, and virtually all other diseases. I take great pride in working with individuals and groups and seeing how they create such positive changes in their lives. I offer one-on-one coaching packages, or we can design a package just for your group. To find out more, go to foodintegritycoaching.com or call me at 415-302-7100 for your free consultation. I offer phone and Skype sessions, and this really is all about quality of life. Let me assist you to have the best quality ever. Hi, it's Carol again. Do you drink almond milk? Do you know that packaged almond milk contains all sorts of nasty additives like carrageenan and barely contains any actual almonds? The good news is that you can make fresh almond milk at home in minutes. Once you taste the creamy, fresh flavor of homing almond milk, you'll never go back. I make my almond milk at home with a Nutiana nut milk bag. It's great, easy to use, easy to clean, and makes my almond milk silky smooth. Buy yours today by searching the Nutiana nut milk bag on Amazon. That's N-U-T-I-A-N-A, nut milk bag. Or go to Nutiana.com. You're going to love this bag. My guest today is Dr. Michelle Perrault. Dr. Perro is a pediatrician with over 35 years of experience in acute and integrative medicine. 
She has held positions that include Director of the Pediatric Emergency Department at New York's Metropolitan Hospital and Attending Physician at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland. She has also managed her own practice. But today we're going to be talking with Dr. Perro about her book, which she co-authored with Vincent Adams, which is entitled, What's Making Our Children Sick? How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. Dr. Perrow, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for having me. Well, we are excited to learn from you today, and uh, there's no question that our children in this country are declining in health, and we have got a lot to talk about today. But before we get started, can you let our listeners know a little bit more about you and why you decided to become a pediatrician? Sure, happy to go into that. Uh, I've always had a passion for children, and I started with performing. I was an actress first, a child actress, if you can believe that. And the long story is, very briefly, I got into performing in hospitals when I was in high school in a project where we did theater for children in hospitals. And when I was 12, I became a candy striper. And I love that little pink uniform, to be honest with you, Carol. (laughs) So from then on, I began to drift out of theater and into medicine. And it's been, um, and once I found children in medicine, it was love it at first sight. And I've been at it. I'm old, Carol, I think 37 years. (laughs) So, and and here I am still, still doing the do. That's great. Well, we're glad you're doing it. So you say in the introduction of your book, What's Making Our Children Sick, that you're going to try to answer this question literally and with humility. Before we talk about some of these reasons, let's go over some of the uh, chronic illnesses that have reached uh, epidemic proportions in our children this, in, in this country. Can you share some of those with us? Because I think the statistics are really important. I do. Uh, people often don't want to hear it. We'll be brief, but there is an epidemic of chronic illness. When you think about this, Carol, one out of two children now has a chronic disorder. That in itself is shocking information. That's right from the CDC. We now have, everyone knows about the obesity epidemic. It's about one in five children. Everyone knows about asthma. It's about one in eight American children, one in six African-American children. But what's equally horrific, and every pediatrician should be screaming about this, is the rate of neurocognitive disorders, and that those are disorders affecting kids' brain function, such as autism spectrum disorder, which is now hovering around 1 in 43 boys, 1 in about 68 children overall. By, by definition, 1 in 100 is an epidemic. That's a definition. So we have an epidemic of autism or specifically autistic spectrum disorder because there are many kinds of kids on the spectrum, which is profound. And so there are many types of neurologic issues as well. So, And what's also concerning is the rate of autoimmune diseases now affecting children, which is also one of the highest rates of mortality, morbidity in kids is from autoimmunity. So we have a tremendous amount of uh, disease and disorder, 
And some issues have become so commonplace that parents don't even think of them as problems, like kids with chronic stomach aches, kids with um, chronic constipation, and kids with learning challenges such as ADD, ADHD. It's become commonplace household names. And so that's when it becomes that routine, I'm also concerned. Yeah, it, it, it's scary that that's become kind of the new norm. Yes. Um, when you go into a classroom now, teachers are best equipped to share with you the rate of children needing special attention, they're called IEPs, and how many kids that they now have to care for with challenges. And um, even talking anecdotally with our own schools where my kids went, the teachers report back, half the kids in the class have challenges. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what teachers have to deal with? Oh, Yeah. Well, you know, and you'd think with the increase in modern conveniences and the advances in technology that our kids would be getting less sick than previous generations. And this just doesn't seem to be true. So let's just dive in. Let's um, dive. Let's, let's dive, Carol. Let's, let's dive, dive in. What's, what's making our children sick? You know, this hit me about 15 years ago. I... By training, I'm an acute care pediatrician. I did pediatric emergency medicine and urgent care by training. And I was, I had my own little adorable urgent care here in Northern California. And I do a blend of integrative medicine and Western medicine. And all of a sudden, I was seeing kids who were coming in with acute problems, ear infections, bladder infections, lung infections, typical kid issues on top of chronic issues. And I was like, what the heck? And I started seeing more and more children faced with acute on top of a chronic issue, acute on chronic, acute on chronic. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So just because I listen and um, that's all I was doing, I serendipitously was roped into some work by a local moms group called Mamas, Moms Advocating Sustainability to stop the spray of a pesticide here in California. And I joined in reluctantly, but we did it. I I wasn't happy, Carol. I had small kids, PTA, practice. I was so busy, but I did it. And it was a life changer because through those gals, I learned about genetically modified food and Jeffrey Smith. And they said, hey, Michelle, what do you think about GMO food? And I said, "Um, not much. What should, what should I be thinking? They said, well, read Jeffrey Smith. And I said, well, when these moms spoke, I listened. They were smart women. I read it, and light bulbs were popping off because all of a sudden I started reading and recognizing the link between our new industrial food and children's health. And that was about mm, 11 years ago, and I've incorporated what I've learned in my treatment plans ever since. Okay, so this pesticide, was that glyphosate? No, that wasn't glyphosate. Glyphosate, and it, which is the main pesticide in Roundup, right. is how we are 100% exposed. It is in our water, it's in our air, it's in our food, it's mm-hmm. in our breast milk, it's everywhere. So the pesticide we were stopping at that time was against a light brown apple moth, which caused apples to brown. And it was not glyphosate, it was an aerial spray, and it was going to be sprayed along the entire coast of Northern California. Glyphosate was introduced, it's been around since the 70s, by the way, 
But when genetically modified food came out, that food was designed to resist being hurt or harmed or dying when glyphosate was sprayed. Those crops are called herbicide-tolerant crops. So a farmer could spray them, and the weeds would die off, but the crops were not. And, the, and our crops were introduced in around 1996. So we have been spraying on our crops, almost, I can tell you that in a second if you're interested, since for about mm, two decades. And the amount of glyphosate Roundup that's been sprayed has gone up exponentially because of weed resistance and off-label use. So we are being doused in this stuff. We're eating this um, industrial food that's been not studied in humans and now heavily sprayed. And that's what I've been looking at. Well, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, glyphosate, you know, our, I think our, a lot of our listeners are pretty savvy and, and they know what that is. But I can't tell you how many times I'll say something about glyphosate to people and they go, what's that? Uh, they are familiar with Roundup, though. I mean, that's kind of a household word. I think that's kind of by design that a lot of people still don't know what glyphosate is. And it's really, uh, it's, it's so toxic that more people need to care and learn about what this is. And like you said, how it's affecting not only the health of our children, but human health in general. Well, I, I feel for people who, who are inundated by a very slick PR campaign by Big Agribusiness, which has purported that glyphosate and Roundup is not toxic to humans. That's how it first came out, that this was a totally harmless uh, pesticide chemical for humans. And so when it first came out, it said, oh, no effect on us because it affected a pathway that only plants had called a shikimate pathway. Mm -hmm. But what we learned since that is that, well, well, gee, humans don't have that pathway, but our microbiome, the gut bacteria in our tummies, does. And this effect of the microbiome on health is exploding now in our science literature. And it's been linked disruptions in our gut microbiome, which Roundup does do, and I can explain that later if you'd like, is cause, microbiome disruptions are causing a host of diseases. Everything from diabetes, type 1 diabetes, to Alzheimer's is now being shown to be linked to alterations in our microbiome, those germs in our gut. Yeah. Well, uh, let's go into that a little deeper uh, as far as how glyphosate affects the microbiome. I'd be happy to, Carol. Um, it, this is important stuff because it's like, well, well, what does it do to our gut? Well, for starters, it has antimicrobial effects. As a matter of fact, Monsanto, the company that first made this stuff, um, patented it as an antibiotic. Um, and it came out, the patent was in 2002. So the antimicrobial effects of this pesticide have been known. So antimicrobial effects, we know we, it's been studied glyphosate in um, animals, chickens to be exact. And it has been shown to have profound effects on the chicken microbiome. There, is no, there are no studies of glyphosate effect or Roundup on the human microbiome, even though we know it's an antibiotic. It's pretty well known now that antibiotics, we often need them, and we and I write prescriptions for antibiotics as well when they're indicated. You have to take probiotics 
while you are on antibiotics because they disrupt the flora in your gut. And we are not telling patients to take them every day who eat Roundup, and they should because it causes microbial disturbances. How much? What kind? I have no idea. No, no studies are done. As of my speaking today, there's been nothing published. That That is pretty shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely shocking. So you read, let's back up a little bit. You read Jeffrey Smith's book. And for those who don't know who Jeffrey Smith is, he is, he's not a scientist, but he interprets the science. And he's a leading expert, one of the leading experts in the world about GMOs and glyphosate. And he's been studying this stuff for years. So, so you find out, and you're connecting those dots with all the illnesses you're seeing in the kids. How did that change the way you practice medicine? Carol, that is such a good question. And the answer is profoundly. It profoundly changed everything from my working in the acute care clinic to my chronically ill patients. The first thing I do as I begin to evaluate them, and I, I am an integrative or functional medicine doc, as we're called, is I, when we start to treat them, is I put them on an all-organic all food diet. Now, I do a lot of other things as well, but I tell the families, we have to figure out a way that you can switch your food to organic, and we can do it in a way that's cost-effective, and you can feed your whole family, and everyone in the family needs to do it. So it has become part of my therapeutic plan talking about dietary change. And I don't feel enough physicians do this, that we go into the weeds, no pun intended, on what to eat, how to eat it, how to prepare it. I spend a lot of time on food and nutrition. It's the cornerstone of what I do. And in every treatment plan, that's the first thing I say. Organic food is a must. Yeah. Do you get do you get a lot of resistance? I mean, you know, the... The biotech industry has done a great job in convincing everyone that they can't afford organics and that it's only for the elite. So what do you get from parents in this regard? Carol, you're sharp. You're sharp because I'm telling you, um, again, a very slick PR campaign. People who um, support organic food and eating that way um, have been marginalized to be elitist, helicopter moms, neurotic women. Um, we've been marginalized. And um, which has been quite, f frankly, um, very effective. This campaign has been effective. Um, it is doable because I have worked out budgets with families on how to buy organic. And actually, I was in Trader Joe's recently, and organic and non-organic, uh, some foods were the same price. And people were still choosing the non-organic. So it's often a lack of education that yeah. these foods are not equivalent. Agribusiness has done a good job saying that genetically modified food and its counterpart, organic food, are equivalent. They are not. They're not equivalent in terms of chemical additives or nutritive value. And so these are not GMO foods have been shown to have less nutrition than their organically grown counterparts. A lot of the nutrition comes from the soil, and the soil is unhealthy from conventionally grown crops that have been sprayed. And so... I go into families, I've gone into a, a daycare and changed a whole preschool's uh, food to organic and actually they came under budget, if you can believe that. So we have to dispel these myths and um, I think women get it. What's harder to convince 
and here, this is no sex bias here. Sometimes the dads are a little less reluctant. Moms are on board, <laughs> but I have a harder time convincing some of the dads and some of them say, it's all the same. It tastes the same. Why do we have to spend more money on this food? I convince them that it's not the same and you actually don't have to spend more money and we show them how to do it. That's wonderful. So your approach really sets you apart. And why do you think more physicians aren't using your approach? I think it's, um, well, I think a couple of reasons why. People my age, um, we weren't taught this, so you have to go online and figure this out yourself. Okay, so this is not in the medical schools. Also, we, now think about this, Carol. Medical schools still teach one year of pharmacology to, to medical students. And they might get two weeks of nutrition, maybe. And now some medical schools are often are offering a functional medicine, um, like elective for students, which is two weeks. So they are literally bombarded with the pharmacology approach to illness and treatment and get very little on nutrition. So that is one thing. The other thing where healthcare providers have been marginalized, we're also been attacked. As being, as if you question biotech, we are labeled as anti-science. Oh, yeah. Now, I, you know, in this, you know, this book that we wrote, there is, we were hardcore science. I mean, we were digging deep in only the best studies, most valid studies. We went over it with a fine-tooth comb. It's all about the science. So, again, we have to fight these labels that we've been given and we are not I'm actually I say I am pro science I am pro biotech I'm a pro the appropriate use of biotechnology and that's how I put myself out there um, so these are some of the things that we have to fight and I think why there's been reluctance on the part of physicians yeah well you mentioned uh, that you really dug deep into the science and to the studies um, can you talk about um, some of the most shocking studies that you've you've come across? Share a few of those with us. Yes, of course. I think one of the most shocking studies that was like another light bulb moment for me was an amazing study a few years ago done by Dr. Judy Carmen from Australia and Howard Leager, a farmer who's been in a farmer who's been in this business of GM food and organic industry for decades did a pig study several years ago, and they had two groups of pigs, very well done, fed GM food and non-GM food. And then they looked at the pig's intestine, and the amount of inflammation of the pigs that were fed, the GM food, the genetically modified food, was profound. And when you look at the visual, these pathology slides of these pigs' you know, stomachs that are very similar to ours, by the way. We have a lot in common with pig tummies. It was shocking. So that that work by Howard of Leaguer and, and Judy Carmen was a game changer for me, seeing those slides. The proof's in the pudding. I'm looking at it saying, oh, my God. In, inflammation is very classic looking on the pathology slides, and you can see it. It's nothing subtle. There was nothing subtle about it, Carol. Very clear. So yeah, that was, it, it was an amazing study. I actually interviewed Dr. Judy Carmen and Howard Bleager uh, about this study. So 
for our listeners, if you're not familiar with this, just do a search on the blog on Food Integrity Now, and you'll find that interview and and uh, information about that. It's profound. And see, we didn't plan this, Carol. You see, we're we're, on the, we're, we're kind of on the same page here, Doctor Carol. Totally impromptu here. Not. Yeah. Um, uh, so if you want more, I can give you more, or we can change yeah. it. Yeah, uh, can, you, can you talk about uh, Seralini? That's no, pretty um, profound. I also interviewed him. Seralini, oh, my God, another mentor um, and another role model. These profound researcher from France who several years ago, um, he and his team did an immaculate study, um, a toxicology study, looking at rats fed maize, genetically modified maize, and they had three control groups, rats who ate just a regular diet, rats who ate um, genetically modified corn with uh, glyphosate, and those that had genetically modified corn with Roundup. People have to understand that Roundup is a different formulation than just glyphosate. Uh, Roundup is more toxic than just glyphosate. Okay, and he and what what he found was pretty shocking, and he found that the um, rats that had both the ones that were the sickest were the ones that had the genetically modified food laced with Roundup, and he found a high rate of tumors, um, kidney disorder and liver effects and immune dysfunction, and of course he published his work. And he was not prepared for the onslaught and the vehemency of an attack against him and his study. And in an unprecedented, unprecedented science move, his study was taken down, which is very uncommon in our world. Um, and a Monsanto employee got on the board of the journal that publishes study. There are so many shenanigans, and which you can read in Carrie Gillum's new book called Whitewash, which is phenomenal. Um, I have to tell you, I'm almost through it. And so Seralini sued and won, and his study was republished. So his work was profound. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I would be remiss without talking about Michael Antonio's work, who's oh, yeah. a geneticist from the U.K., um, and he showed eloquently in rats that there were problems both with the genetic modification process, that it wasn't the GM process and uh, uh, pesticides. The GM process itself caused issues, which is what Arpad Pusti showed in 1996, and problems with low ultra, ultra low dose Roundup causing, not correlating, with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And he published those studies in December and January of um, 2016 and 2017. And those studies are groundbreaking. He used cutting-edge technology. And, you know, it's amazing with some of these studies that are out, and you look at, you know, the chemicals in our food, and why do you think they're not regulated What's what's going on there? Oh dear, oh dear, <laughs> the fox in the hen house. Yeah. Um, our regulators are regulated by industry. There is such a uh, revolving door policy between the FDA, EPA, USDA, and big agribusiness that they're one big happy family. Our regulators have not 
uh, have allowed agribusiness to produce their own studies and are not and are not producing their own research. So we, our regulators, have not uh, policed industry in any way and have allowed glyphosate even not to be tested. They test every other pesticide but not glyphosate. The amount of shenanigans that's gone on is like a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, it's it's unbelievable, a mission impossible. And it's it's been that lapse in regulation that has caused this massive, massive allowance of agribusiness to do whatever they want. They have been unchecked, Carol. Yeah, and again, for listeners who want to dig in deeper to this, I did interview Carrie Killam a month ago, too, and uh, her book is uh, just a wealth of information about the, I use this word loosely, shenanigans of uh, Monsanto and and what they've been up to and basically the whole cover-up. Yes. um, Yeah, I think as a scientific journalist and your listeners should listen to Carrie Gillum. It's amazing. She has done uh, an incredible, intensive, um, fact-finding job of producing uh, data. Her, what she wrote about, she has validated, researched, cited. It's a very meticulous uh, work that she produced. And it gives, it's great for me to be able to lean on people like Carrie who have, I can say that now with a great degree of certainty, yes, there have been shenanigans. She's gotten the emails from these companies through the FOIA um, Act. So you see, it really gives me a platform to stand on when I say these things that they're founded. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned Saralini and his study, and uh, I think I saw him being interviewed briefly by Zen Honeycutt of Moms Across America, and he was talking about glyphosate and how it becomes... I think he, I think he said a thousand times more toxic when it's mixed with certain surfactants and adjuvants. Yes. So again, and it's not like they're really testing glyphosate. The EPA does not test glyphosate. No, they, they are not. They and let's let's talk about that for a minute, and and because sure. there are a lot of people. Uh, are under the misconception that our Environmental Protection Agency is testing all these uh, pesticides, and they're not. How, how does that work from your perspective? What have you learned? Um, what, what I've learned about, you know, EPA testing, I think I said FDA before, well, I, it, it should be EPA, EPA test pesticides, is that they gave a green light to Monsanto to produce their own research on, on terms of safety. When Monsanto said that, that, the, that GM food and non-GM food is equivalent that's all that the EPA needed and said, okay, it doesn't need to be tested. Um, why they pulled that, it's really unclear. When glyphosate was first introduced in the 80s and the and um, EPA was looking at it, there were scientists who protested, and they had research showing um, kidney tumors. In their original research, when the EPA was looking at this data, showing these certain kind of tumors called renal tubular adenomas were found, and they and Monsanto was able to sway the EPA from, you know, saying that, no, this food is was known to be carcinogenic back in 1983. We've known this for a long time. So why is the EPA found to do this? 
you know, we we can say, well, we learned about Jess Rowland in the EPA saying, well, I can help you get rid of some data. We've learned about ghostwriting by Monsanto. We've learned about, you know, data being dropped. Um, so there's been there, there's been such collusion. I, and I have to use the word collusion without sounding like a conspiracist. It's, it's been shown. This is not, you know, me being conspiracy theory. These documents have been shown. These emails have been produced. These statements have been aired. Why the EPA is doing that? We would have to assume that um, people are being paid for uh, <laughs> why they do it and why they had no longer failed to protect children. It's, it's quite shocking. What I don't understand is the EPA, those are run by people. These people have children. These people have grandchildren. Their children and grandchildren are being affected as well. So it's hard for me to wrap around people. These are your kids too who are being hurt. So I, I can't say that I understand fully why. And so we have to say really profit over health, our children's health. It is, is it that simple? Greed over health. And you know, it's hard as a pediatrician to wrap around that. Really, people. So yeah. I would. That's what I believe, um, and it's unfortunate. But I'm also incredibly optimistic that we, as feeders of our children, can turn the tide through economic uh, pressure and what we choose to buy. Absolutely, and you know, we can talk about this all the time. Um, I just wanted to briefly mention too, if anybody's. Uh, interested in learning more about the inner workings of the EPA, uh, Evagos Valianato's book, Poison Springs, is really a good one that um, is very enlightening. He was a former uh, EPA employee, and uh, he wrote a book about it. So, um, Carol, thank you for that. That is a phenomenal book, and I would encourage people to take a look at that for people who want more information. Um, I've read that book myself, and yes... <laughs> um, not surprised, but yeah, eye opening, very eye opening, but eye opening yet again. Correct. Again, and and these books are you know based on um, factual experiences. They're not just hearsay. So um, you know, I encourage, I encourage our listeners to. I I like to say this on my show a lot. Don't just take our word for it. Do your own research. Yeah, because Our audiences are smart, Carol. My patients' parents are smart. Yeah. I say, you know, validate what I say. You you check this out. You know, right, I love that you do that, Carol, that yeah. people need to figure this out for themselves and then come back to me and say, yeah, I want to work with you. This is right on or not. But, yes, people need to do their homework and take a look at the data themselves. Yeah, because we've been trained to just bleed the man in the white coat and at face value and not to investigate our own health or, you know, um, and people didn't really question it for many years. It's true, Carol. I mean, it's, it was a <clears throat> patriarchal system, a matriarchal yep. system, a top-down, tear-down system. Mm -hmm. And um, the first thing I tell families as we start to work together is we are collaborators in your children's health. And I will create an umbrella treatment plan, but it's all up to you. Yeah. 
and how you'd like this to proceed. You have an equal part in this conversation about you and your family's health. So that is part of my dialogue with families. This is not about what I'm telling you to do. This is a plan we create together. Which is wonderful. So many parents, you know, don't have access uh, to doctors like you um, who really understand toxicity and nutrition and the importance of uh, our microbiome or our gut. Uh, what can you say to those parents how can they how how can they get good information so there are a lot of sites where they can go like sites like yours food and Terry now they can go to institute for responsible technology jeffrey's site um zen honeycutt has a great site moms across america yeah. and these sites have tremendous resource sections i also like environmental working group ken cook's site on you know how do you get information but what I try to do when 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 families come in and it's often moms and they're busy and they're working and they have three kids right you know you can't give them a laundry list of things to do keep it simple so what I say listen if you can do these three things chances are your kids gonna get better even without someone like me an integrative you know practitioner one eat organic and I mean a hundred percent and Throw out everything that's packaged in your house and someone's got to be in the kitchen. And guess what? It doesn't have to be mom. It can be the kids. It can be dad. Okay? Someone's got to get back in there. Two, oh, yeah. use a water filter. Um, it can be a very simple one, a carbon-based filter. They're not very expensive right now. You can keep it in the fridge. And three, I say reduce the environmental toxicity around your child and your family. So... You're only as healthy as what's around you, your external terrain, and your internal terrain. Reduce plastics. Reduce um, what kind of cookware you use. Reduce what dust you track in your house. If you can do those three things, your child, your family will show improved health. I'm convinced. I've done it. I've yeah. seen it. I agree with you. If you give people a to-do list that is too long, they're going to get overwhelmed. I'm a holistic nutritionist, so I work with people with their diet, and I do a very similar thing. You know, you eat 100% organic first and foremost. And, uh, you know, if I, if I get it's too expensive, then, you know, then we can deal with that, and we, we figure there's, there's a way. But to, to have them do the simple things like, you know, drink pure water and uh, to start off there. And I find, and I don't know if you find this as well, but once they, they notice, they start to feel better, then they want to do more. Oh, Carol, woman after my own heart. Yes, indeedy. Proofs in the pudding. And not only that, when they do make these dietary and life changes and then they slip for whatever reason, travel, grandma's house, you name it, they feel worse right away. Yeah. And they're like, oh, my God, this really does work. Yeah. So often I'll say, go back. Go back to how you're eating. See how you feel. Yeah. And, and they report a bloating, a constipation, foggy brain, fatigue, that their joints ache. You'd be amazed because once you clean up and you're less toxic, you get used to feeling toxic, the body appreciates and will tell you it prefers the non-toxic state. It's going to let you know. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of people that have been eating so much toxic food for so many years that they have no idea what that feeling is of, of feeling healthy. And when they, they make this shift and then they start to feel it, you really can't, it's hard to go back. Uh, Carol, I did it myself in my own family. You know, we're 100% organic here. I've done it with my own kids and their health challenges. And they report, oh, yeah, when I eat out, I know I'm going to have to pay for it that night. But I had a mom just email me yesterday saying, she said, Dr. Perro, what do I do when the kids go to sleepovers and they're eating the pizza at school and it's not organic? And I, you know, and I, and I give them things to do. Or, you know, I have a lot of kids who I've taken off gluten and dairy. So there are things that the moms learn to do. I said, yep, don't be neurotic about it. If they've gotten into that food and they're now feeling not well, I tell them what plants to make smoothies from. I said, let's try. Do you, can you get any cilantro? Can you get some celery? Can you get some fresh parsley? Can you get some ginger? Do you have a, uh, do you have a blender? Can you make a smoothie? Will help you detox, particularly... The weeds that everybody's spraying, dandelions, one of the best liver detoxes there is. Oh, yeah, they're great. <laughs> so, you know, give people tools like, yeah, and help your body, help your liver, love your liver, give them, and eat fermented foods. Teach parents how to make their own sauerkraut. So that's one thing I do, and I do give um, little, I'll give a trick of the trade, digestive enzymes that are chewable for certain kids. So, yeah, I use things to help offset when we don't have perfect lives, and I don't ask people to be perfect, I say, listen, yeah, you're going to travel, and if you fall off, that's okay. You're, you're going to come back quicker because you've been really so healthy, and here are some tools. But we do the best we can. Yeah, and you know what I have found? I don't know if you found this in your practice, but where you know it's great to eat organic most of the time, but like you were saying, once in a while... It's not really going to be the end of the world. And I think sometimes we, there's a lot of fad diets out there. And not everybody is gluten intolerant, although many are. But I think a lot of people have given up so, so many foods that they're going to narrow the things that they can eat and they're going to have nothing to eat. Yes. Um, Carol, this is true. And I tell people, you know what, if you're going to eat this stuff, what I tell people to do, yes, you're going to be exposed to pesticides. We can help your liver offset those. Yeah. Don't get crazy about it. I really try to have people avoid GMOs. So when yes. They yes, absolutely. And I, and I tell them, listen, you know, the GMOs are corn, soy, and canola. If you can somehow avoid those foods, if you're at a party or out for dinner or whatever, without making yourself nutty, then do that. Yeah, and sugar beets too. Sugar, sugar you know, from sugar that's, beets. That's high. Yeah. Yep, sugar beets are high, and you know, so I try to give them the basics, and I say eat, you know, and don't try if you're at a party or grandma's house, don't eat the processed foods. They are almost, I think, eighty-five percent of them have genetically modified ingredients. So you want to stick to the salads, the fresh fruits, and the the you know the veggie dip or whatever. Stick to those foods, and we and give people you know guidelines. If it's if someone really needs to stay organic because they have severe health challenges, I have them bring food with them and eat before they go. I have some people like that, but they're not the majority. And you want people to be able to enjoy their lives without getting nutty. 
And so these, this is valuable, how we can live in this society that is so toxic. We live in a toxic society. How can, how can we survive it and feel okay about it without stressing about it? Well, I love that in the book, you know, you talk about what is making our kids sick, but you also have some great solutions. So, you know, it's not just like, here's all the bad news and, you know, we're doomed. So, <laughs> you know, we, 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 have to, we have to have some good news. Here's how we can, can uh, shift our health. And, you know, because when you think about it, Dr. Farrell, it's, it's, it's about quality of life. It is about quality of life and so much when people shift to food, getting back into food, all of a sudden when people are cooking and preparing food together, uh, their community comes together. It's more nurturing when we are not eating this processed food, when we're cooking it ourselves, when it's farm to table, when we come together with friends. It's a movement back to the way we used to eat and there, and people are enjoying it more. And, and having more relationship around good food. So I think it's a return to the recognition and, and the blessings of our beautiful food. So we're positive, we're embracing, we're getting back in touch with our farmers. People don't even know where food comes from, hello. I know. And this return back to the soil can only be good for all of us. Um, so I love the slow food movement and getting people you know, we have a party. We have a farm-to-table party. There are communities all over now going to farms and having dinners around here where we live in Northern California. We're so blessed. You yeah, know. We, we have that here. I'm in, um, I'm in Southern. I'm in the Temecula area, and um, I'm really blessed, too, because it's, it's becoming uh, more and more the norm to see a farm-to-table event, which I think is incredible. Isn't that incredible? And the farmers markets, I mean, they have, they're exploding. I've gone to, I've traveled and there have been farmers markets just about everywhere. Um, and knowing your farmer, um, you know, and you talk to them about how they're raising their beets, you know, (laughs) you know, um, some of us can grow our own. Some of us can't. I don't grow my own food, but I will pay the farmer to grow it for me. And I'm appreciative of what they do. Oh, me too. If uh, my friends laugh at me because um, I'm such a foodie, and my favorite day of the week is Saturday to go to the farmers market because I get to talk to my farmers and I take pictures of the food. I mean, I'm just I'm so grateful for our organic and biodynamic farmers. Echo that, Carol. I am with you. I head to the farmer's markets. Um, we have them here in our county. I'm in Northern California. We have them all year. I mean, oh, my yeah, God. We do here, too, which is great. I mean, I know people in different parts of the country don't have that, but, um, you know, you can you can take advantage of what's in season and canning. And there, there are things you can do. It sounds like it may yeah. be a pain. But, there, you know, it's getting, I think it's getting easier, don't you? It is getting so much easier. Awareness is there. People want organic. Organic food sales is have um, you know skyrocketed, and or, a lot of farmers are switching to organic because it's profitable. Farmers are practical people, as you probably know from talking to Howard, Howard Vlieger. These oh are, yeah, I love Howard. <laughs> they they get it. They understand that we. You know, farmers like wow. People will spend a bit more and get better food. What a thought. Yeah. So there is their shift. Organic markets are exploding. The amount of money people are now buying organic is huge. Support that. And um, 
what I tell people is if, you know, eat in season, eat local, but when you can, if you're up in the north part of the country, then what you can do is I say buy frozen organic food. Frozen would be the next best thing, or you buy it in season and you freeze it. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, right. it's it's not as easy for for some people, but there, like I said, there there are ways. So, um, and the internet's a great tool to learn how to do almost anything. Oh my God! If it's not on YouTube, I learned how to out <laughs> crowd on YouTube. I mean, I thought, oh, I could just YouTube it. I asked my twenty year old daughter. I said, how do I learn? She goes, Mom, YouTube it. What what's wrong with you? Like, oh. yeah, I know that's. Uh, I learned how to paint on YouTube. That's so funny. <laughs> I mean, you can learn anything on YouTube. Uh, well, yes. well, Doctor Peril, thank you so much uh, for being a guest on our show today, and I think the book is phenomenal. Uh, Again, it's called What's Making Our Children Sick, How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness, and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. And Carol, I mean, this is, I feel like we're out having coffee. It's delightful (laughs) chatting with you, um, and not because we're so like-minded, is because you have a tremendous depth of understanding of what is a very difficult topic. Uh, So thank you for the work you're doing. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Well, it's just, again, it's been great having you. And I think anybody who's a parent, and even if you're not a parent, get this book because it's, uh, it's just a great resource. And I think you'll learn a lot. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another great show. 